A few years ago, a team of conservators in England is using x-rays to look at a painting when they see something surprising behind the paint. The painting is called Magus at a Table. It's a small painting, about 22 inches tall, that's hung for a long time in Upton House, a country manor right out of Jane Austen, about two hours northwest of London. The painting shows a magus, a kind of priestly magician, right, in a skull cap and golden robe, looking at a book in the shadows of an ancient room. It's very mysterious and very old. It looks like it was painted by Rembrandt. It has his name on it, after all, right in the bottom left. But what the conservators discover behind the paint is a sketch. And in the sketch, a lot of things are different than the final painting. The magician is holding a candle in the sketch. In the final painting, he's not. The book is in his hands in the sketch. In the final painting, the book is on a table. Now, Rembrandt didn't do sketches. Well, not very often, anyway. He got it right the first time. Also, back in the 1980s, curators decided that the painting was a copy by Rembrandt of a lost painting by another artist. And you wouldn't make a sketch for a copy and then not follow it, right? If you're making a copy, you don't change everything around. So, now things are awkward. How do you tell the painting's owner, in this case, the National Trust, that the painting they thought they had by the world's most famous artist is actually not? Well, in 2014, the National Trust breaks the news. The painting is not a Rembrandt. It's by an artist hardly anyone has heard of. A man named Jan Levens, who's been stuck in Rembrandt's shadow for the last 400 years. This is The Object, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. Today, a story of stolen identity, rivalry and forgery, and our ongoing obsession with the nature of genius. I'm Tim Gehring. Let's go back to the early 1600s in Holland, which is on its way to becoming the greatest and flattest superpower in the world, right? The Dutch are making a killing, apparently, selling gin, herring, and cheese, and eventually tulips. The Dutch are rich enough now that when Rembrandt comes along in 1606, and eventually asks his hard-working father, a miller, if he can go off and study painting. His father is like, fine. We'll save a room in the attic for you. Jan Levens is born in the same city, the city of Leiden, just 15 months later, in 1607. And he too persuades his father to let him study art. In fact, Levens goes first, 
He goes to Amsterdam to study with the great history painter, Peter Lastman, when he's just 10 years old. And when he comes back to Leiden two years later, Levens opens his own studio in his father's house. And he's still just 12 years old. Then it's Rembrandt's turn. He too goes to Amsterdam to study with Peter Lastman. And six months later, he comes home to be an artist. Rembrandt and Levens are now sharing models, though not the way you're thinking of, and possibly a studio. They're modeling for each other. And for a long time, they're copying each other. In the collection of the Minneapolis Institute of Art are early etchings by both men, with a lot of overlap. At one point, Levens is inspired by Rembrandt to etch a series of imagined portraits of men in fanciful dress. Rembrandt, in turn, copies all four portraits. When Levens experiments with scratching paint using the butt end of his brush, Rembrandt copies that too. Back and forth, they imitate each other's work. Samson and Delilah, Christ on the Cross, The Raising of Lazarus. Levens is good. In fact, early on, he might even be better than Rembrandt. And Rembrandt knows it. He begins to backdate the paintings he's making, in imitation of Jan Levens, to suggest that he's the leader, not the follower. Do you remember the film Amadeus, about Mozart and Salieri? It came out in 1984, the same year as Purple Rain, so don't confuse the two. Amadeus is the one with better acting and fewer motorcycles. Now, here's Salieri, right? The court composer for the Austrian emperor. A great composer. And suddenly, Amadeus Mozart comes along. This insolent youth. An obscene child, as Salieri says in the film. Who neglects his gifts, his wife, his money. And yet, Everyone ends up remembering Mozart, and hardly anyone remembers Salieri. Can you recall no melody of mine? I was the most famous composer in Europe. Well, that was fiction, mostly. For Jan Levens and Rembrandt, the rivalry is real. They're friends and enemies. They're frenemies. By the early 1630s, both men have moved to Amsterdam. And this guy named Constantine Huygens meets with both of them. Huygens is a prominent patron, a booster of the arts in Holland, an influencer. And he compares the two artists like this. Rembrandt is superior to Levens in his sure touch and liveliness of emotions. Conversely, Levens is the greater in inventiveness and audacious themes and forms. 
everything his young spirit endeavors to capture must be magnificent and lofty. He has an acute and profound insight into all manner of things. Levens is a rock star. In a self-portrait from around 1630, he has this long, wild hair down to his chest and strong cheekbones and a fierce expression. He could be Jim Morrison from The Doors if Morrison was into painting Bible scenes. Rembrandt, on the other hand, in a portrait that Levens makes of him around 1628, looks like a jerk. The smug smart kid who makes fun of you because you haven't read Infinite Jest. Never mind that he's wearing a beret and some weird piece of armor. Anyway, when the Flemish master Anthony van Dyke is compiling his collection of prominent painters in 1631 or so, he decides to paint Levin's portrait and not Rembrandt's. Now, let's talk about copying for a minute. Because in the 1600s, it's not the dirty word it is now, right? If the line between inspiration and emulation in the arts has often been thin, in the 1600s, it's practically non-existent. Artists are expected to emulate their masters. It's right there in the foremost art text, the Schilderbuck, or Book of Painters, published by Carl van Mander in 1604. You spend years as a student doing nothing but making copies of prints. And eventually, if you're lucky, you outdo the master. But that takes time. To express your ingenium, van Mander says, you first need your studium. And Rembrandt is a master, first of all, of studium. Once when a Titian painting is being auctioned off, Rembrandt goes to see it, makes a little drawing of it, notes how much it's selling for, and then goes home to make his own version. Rembrandt never does leave Amsterdam, right? He's in the right place at the right time. He has everything he needs for inspiration right here. And for a while, Levens doesn't seem to be leaving either. In fact, that influencer, Constantine Huggins, who sees the promise of both Rembrandt and Levens, notes that they have yet to visit Italy when he meets them. They haven't studied the old masters in person. They are carelessly content with themselves, he writes. Levens, most of all, perhaps. My only objection, Huggins writes, is his stubbornness, which derives from an excess of self-confidence. He either roundly rejects all criticism, or, if he acknowledges its validity, takes it in bad spirit. But, once Levin senses what he's worth, he decides to cash in. 
Stevens paints the Megaseta table work and some other interesting pieces. And then, around 1631, when he's 24 years old, Levens goes to England, hoping for a job on the royal court. And he gets it. For the next few years, he paints aristocrats, the great lords of London. And he's good at it, apparently, though all traces of these portraits are lost. He's Salieri at the emperor's court, living well if not exactly stretching himself. And then, after a few years, he leaves. In the spring of 1635, he goes to Antwerp in what's now Belgium. And there, for a moment, he does more or less what he wants to do. He paints landscapes. He teaches himself to make woodcuts. He gets married. He does some of his most compelling work here. Like this kind of dimly lit lowlife painting called Fighting Card Players and Death. And then, when money calls, he starts moving again. Now, Rembrandt is starting to make money too. In 1635, the same year that Levens moves to Antwerp, Rembrandt moves into a fashionable neighborhood with his new wife, Saskia. And a few years later, they move into a big new place they can't really afford. Rembrandt is spending money as fast as he's making it. And part of that is because he can't stop buying other people's art so he can measure himself against it. Rembrandt is competitive with everyone. This is kind of his superpower, right? In his mind, he's competing not just with Levens, certainly, but every artist out there, dead or alive. In a recent show at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, a series of prints showed how Rembrandt takes a much earlier depiction of the Judgment of Christ by Lucas van Leiden and makes it into something of a Raphael based on an engraving he had seen. The van Leiden that became a Raphael is now indisputably a Rembrandt. Both artists are evolving. But Levens is evolving into what his clients want him to be. Rembrandt is evolving into what he wants to be. In 1644, Levens moves back to Amsterdam. Rembrandt, of course, hasn't gone anywhere. And within a few years, both of their wives are dead, and both of their bank accounts running dry. Levens responds by getting remarried and painting rich people again. And soon, he's one of the top portrait painters to the Amsterdam elite. By the 1650s, Levens is being tapped for some of the biggest decorative commissions of the Dutch Golden Age. Paintings for palaces and administrative buildings. Rembrandt responds by sleeping with the family wet nurse even before his wife is dead 
and declaring bankruptcy. And then he really starts to fall apart. His late wife had stuck a poison pill in her will, right? He can't remarry without giving up her money. And when he gets his new partner pregnant, out of wedlock, the church comes down hard on both of them. And then his new partner dies too, at 37. Rembrandt starts to shift into his darkest, deepest phase, right? He paints the mythical young woman named Lucretia, about to kill herself after being raped by a friend of her husband. And then, a couple years later, he paints Lucretia again. This time after she's done it, her dress soaked in blood. Remember when the influencer Constantine Huggins meets both young artists? One of the things he hopes is that they'll keep a list of the works they made. But, of course, they don't. Neither one of them. And so, when the Romantics eventually rediscover Rembrandt, in the age of Beethoven and Byron, they remake him in their own image. As a kind of lone soul struggling against the mainstream. A genius. When the first catalog of Rembrandt's paintings is created in 1836 by the English art dealer John Smith, it's huge. Because it's hard to know for sure what he painted. And because the criteria is more poetic than anything. Smith has this idea that you just know a Rembrandt when you see it, if you know what to look for. Quote, Beauties which emanate from a higher source, such as expression, delicacy of gradation, and harmony of tints. These things, he says, are simply, quote, beyond the reach of all who are inferior to the master himself. Rembrandt's reputation gets so big, it's like a black hole. The gravity of his genius pulling in all kinds of people adjacent to him. The people he imitated, the people who imitated him, the people who worked for him. Their work becomes attributed to Rembrandt, and the more popular he becomes, the greater the temptation to do it even when you know better. The Magus at a Table painting hanging in the country manor, it is attributed to Jan Levens, before it isn't. And somewhere along the line, Rembrandt's signature is added. Rembrandt had probably already put his name to work done mostly by his assistants. And his assistants almost certainly put his name on work they did. And now, his dealer's doing it. Soon, the only paintings attributed to Levens 
are his least interesting. The ones the master couldn't possibly have done. But let's go back one more time to the 1600s. In their later years, Rembrandt and Levens find themselves living along the same canal in Amsterdam. Rembrandt is basically doing anything just to pay his rent. And even though Levens is getting good money for good work, he can't seem to hang on to it. They're both, in one sense, back where they started. When the call goes out for the best artist in the land to contribute paintings for the grand central hall of a palace in The Hague, Jan Levens is chosen, but not Rembrandt. And when another big commission to decorate the new Amsterdam town hall goes out, Jan Levens is again invited, and not Rembrandt. Only when another painter dies before he finishes his work is Rembrandt called in. And then his painting is rejected anyway. By then, perhaps, Rembrandt is too much his own man. Too original. Too weird. To fit into some civic scheme. In 1655, while Levens is painting for these grand institutions, Rembrandt is in his studio with a small copper plate. The plate he used to print the Judgment of Christ a couple years earlier. And he decides to obliterate the rabble-rousing crowd standing before Christ and Pontius Pilate. Just literally scrapes it off the plate. And slowly, he works to replace the crowd with a couple of dark pits. These bottomless caverns, leading into hell, perhaps. As if to say, beware to anyone prepared to judge, lest you be judged yourself. Who are we to say who is worthy, and who is to be cast aside? This has been the Object Podcast. I'm Tim Gehring. Please leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe and be the first to get new episodes. And thanks very much for listening. Thank you.